The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Hector Berlioz described it as, quote, one of those poems that human language does not know how to qualify. Ludwig Rellstab called it Mondschein Sonata, the music of a boat quietly sailing into the far reaches of Lake Lucerne in Switzerland, guided only by the light of the moon. I'm talking, of course, about Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, the name that we often call Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number 14. Excuse me. The piano sonata number 14 in C-sharp minor, quasi una fantasia, opus number 27, number 2. It's a triumph of a piece, a standard three-movement sonata that begins with a painstakingly slow and quiet exposition, but ends with a wild-eyed, borderline, demented third movement. The whole sonata is quite possibly Beethoven's best work for piano, or at least one of the best examples of his compositional brilliance. But in characteristic humility, Beethoven saw how popular his work was upon its initial release and simply remarked, surely I've written better things. And maybe he has. But today, for our purposes here, I've been reflecting on the first movement, Adagio. Here's 90 seconds of it. first movement of the piece is a haunting six minutes of hearing notes softly sail along the C-sharp minor scale. It's played pianissimo and no louder than piano for the result, and as a result, it's quiet. It's melancholic. The right hand aches with longing and pain, and the octaves in the left hand force the piece to keep moving despite 
its sadness. Berlioz properly named the first movement of this piece a lamentation, the urgent cry for help amid the pressures of life to keep moving forward. In season five, episode four of The West Wing, a brilliant North Korean pianist who is to give a performance at the White House is looking to secretly defect to the U.S. and claim asylum. However, due to a nuclear agreement being worked out between North Korea and some other nations, the fictional President Josiah Bartlett is forced to deny his request for asylum. In sadness and despair while sitting at a piano, the pianist asks the president if he knew what the Korean word Han means. It's a term that describes a deep sense of sorrow and pain that comes from a situation you cannot change and which you cannot make right. But the pianist doesn't say any of those words. Instead, he looks at the piano and says, Han is this, and he plays the opening measures of the Moonlight Sonata. And with that, the scene ends. Those aching notes of the sonata's first movement are the sound of the human cry against all that is wrong. They are the ache of people trapped in brutal dictatorships. They are the cry of enslaved people longing for freedom. They are the weeping of a woman facing down the onslaught of cancer. They are the sorrow of the poor who cannot find the first rung of the ladder. They are Beethoven's musical formulation of the Hebrew words from today's psalm, Ad Adonai, how long, O Lord. Today our summer series in the psalms continues, and today we turn from the major key wisdom of Psalm 1 and the full orchestra wonder of Psalm 8 to the moonlight sonata of the prayer book. Today we turn to Psalm 13, our first foray into the psalms of lament. Over one-third of the book of psalms are psalms of lament. Psalms of anguish and pain which turn to God for help. I find that striking, that one-third of the prayer book of Jesus, one-third of the hymnal of the first Christians, one-third were songs and prayers of aching, anguished, cries to God to step in and do something. When Paul and Silas were thrown in jail in Philippi and weren't sure if they were going to survive, the book of Acts says they were praying and singing hymns to God. And we tend to immediately think that they were singing songs of joy and praise, but I imagine that they were going to the treasures of the Psalms of Lament, and I imagine them crying out to God about their circumstance and pleading with God to help. Today's psalm is a brief psalm of individual lament, a psalm expressing to God the inner experience of a particular suffering person, and it is a psalm that pleads with God to do something about our present pain. The psalm is in the, entirely in the first person singular, and five-sixths of the psalm is, dire, is, de, uh, is directed entirely to God, the final verse being an exception. As far as this particular psalm is concerned, Psalm 13, we don't know anything about what the author had experienced before writing these words. We're giving no notes or indication about the life circumstances that may have prompted this despair. As such, the psalm remains for us a generic psalm of lament. Generic because it's not tied to a specific situation or historical moment of which we are aware. 
Because of this, Psalm 13 is for us what one scholar calls the parade example of lamentation. It is lament in its purest, most distilled, most practiced form. For me, Psalm lament is to, or Psalm 13 is to lamentation what the Lord's prayer is to prayer. Just as the Lord's prayer is a perfectly good prayer to offer on its own, it is also a model to teach somebody how to pray using different words. So, Psalm 13 is a great prayer of lament that we can offer to God straight out of Scripture, but it also teaches us about how we pray our own prayers of lament in times of trouble. And like Beethoven had three movements in his sonata, today's psalm of lament has three movements, and today I want to dive into those three movements and talk us through the psalm. So if you have your Bible open to Psalm 13, let's dive right in. Psalm 13. Psalm 13 opens with the first movement, which we might call the complaint. Say, complaint. Complaint. Here the author is going to bring to God the essential core of the problems they are experiencing. And in today's psalm, the complaint, say complaint, the complaint is threefold, all of which feed into one another. First, the author has some serious theological complaints. Verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The psalmist is not conjecturing whether or not God actually forgets us or if God actually hides his face from us. The psalmist is not interested in debating whether or not things are possible, but rather the author is stating it as the emotive reality of his present circumstance. You have forgotten me, God. You have hid your face from me. The question is not have you, the question is for how much longer? In essence, the psalmist is accusing God of two things. First, he accuses God of abandoning him. Like a parent leaving an infant crying in their crib and then leaving the house to go out for brunch. The sorrow the writer of this psalm was experiencing is so acute that it feels as if God had simply forgotten about him altogether and has left him abandoned. The second thing he accuses God of is being nearby, but being uncaring of his present circumstance. How long will you hide your face from me? What is worse, the psalmist asks. Is it worse to have God abandon us in our pain, or for God to be right there watching us suffer, but to not care enough to step in and help? That is what the psalmist feels right at the top, like God has either abandoned him or that God doesn't care enough to help. And with God absent from his situation in his estimation, the psalmist is forced to look elsewhere for resources and strength. And so he turns to his own self. Verse 2, how long must I bear pain in my soul, our translation says. How long must I have sorrow in my heart all day long. 
In Hebrew, the phrase, have pain in my heart, is literally translated, how long must I take counsel in my soul? And I, I prefer that, I think. I prefer that because it's almost like he's looking for help somewhere and he looks inside and he's exhausted by that there is not enough inside to sustain him. The problem here is that his own heart and soul are so afflicted and pain-filled they cannot offer him any relief, they cannot give him any hope, they cannot rescue him from his circumstance. He is so anxious and so worried that his inner life is causing him now additional pain. He can't pull himself up by his own bootstraps. His bootstraps have been broken and his inner resources of self-sufficiency have been looted and plundered by his reality. So the psalmist is stuck. God seems to be uninterested in his pain. He is psychologically and mentally in distress, but it gets worse for him. The complaint doesn't stop here. He looks around at his neighbors. And he sees the people who are hostile to him now being given power and authority over him. He is now the victim of the political will of the people who despise him. He asks, how long, verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Our enemies that are exalted over us are probably not flesh and blood people, though maybe they are for you. More likely, the enemies for you and for me are the circumstances in our life, the, the situations and realities that have seemingly been handed power over us. Our despondency with our present situation in life can be an enemy that's handed power. Unresolved and serious conflict in our, with our spouse or our family can be an enemy. Our bodies can be our enemy. Cancer cells can be our enemy. Our unemployment can be our enemy. For some, our employment can be our enemy. Our addictions can be an enemy. Our financial debts can be an enemy. These can be given power over us. They can be exalted over us. They can inflict one more pain on top of all the other pain. And they can seem like they're claiming victory over us when we fall. The complaint of Psalm 13. God, uncaring or absent, my own strength tapped out, the world filled with enemies who rejoice when I suffer. The first movement of the psalm is complaint. Say complaint. The second movement of the psalm is the cry for help. Cry for help. The second movement of Psalm 13 is supplication, a fancy way, a church way, oh, such a church word, a church way of saying to ask God to intercede. Here the tone shifts away from the outpouring of grief to a pointed plea asking God to do something about the problem. The question, how long, O oh Lord, now becomes an imperative, consider and answer me. In fact, the psalmist here makes two petitions, beginning in verse 3 and continuing through verse 4. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. The great terror of the poet's lament is rooted in that fear that God is not even looking in his direction. Or worse, that God is looking and is staying silent. The, the word that's translated consider might better be translated pay attention. The word carries with it a sense of 
purpose. This is not just a plea for God to merely glance over at the suffering person. To consider, to pay attention implies that the kind of looking or seeing that is being done is purposeful. Parents or caregivers, it's, it's when we're in the other room and we hear that loud crash followed by a long silence and then a long injured cry. Our attention rushes in and we are now considering our child. We run in the room, eyes scanning, looking for the cause of the accident, looking to gather up our child in our arms and take them down to have their broken wrist caused by a basement accident bound up for the summer. That, that's what consider means. And that's one of the ways that we need to pray at times. God, I'm hurting here. I do not think I'm going to get out of this alive. Run to my aid. Rush down the basement stairs and pick me up. Consider me. Answer me. Tell me that you see me. The second petition the psalmist makes is in verse 3, end of verse 3, to give light to my eyes. Otherwise, I'll sleep in death, and my enemies will say they have prevailed, and my foes will rejoice because I am overthrown. Here the psalm makes another imperative demand. Give light to my eyes. And then it gives three reasons why it's important. Otherwise, I'm going to die. My enemies will say they have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I'm overthrown. Now it's entirely likely that the psalmist has here in mind physical light. Like maybe he is at the final stages of his life or facing a terminal illness and doesn't have the strength to make it through another day and light might literally mean fill my eyes with vision, give me my sight back. Maybe the psalmist wanted God to cleanse his body of an illness that was causing him to be unable to see. But it is also likely that the psalmist had in mind a more symbolic sense of the word light. Throughout the Psalms, the word light is always used for, to describe something with God and never with physical seeing. In Psalm 27, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 31 says, Let your light shine upon me. Psalm 36 that we use today in our call to worship, In your light we see light. And Psalm 43 says, send out your light and your truth and lead, let them lead me to where you dwell. In each of these passages, God's light is part of God's being, part of God's existence. And when this kind of light arrives, God is also at hand. And so for God to give light expects that God is also drawing close and coming near. That when light is given, God is present it's not just light that the psalmist desires. It is God's presence, God's closeness. Facing the bitterness of pain and suffering, the psalmist longed for God's closeness. Light is a fitting metaphor. For death often arrives slowly, darkness creeping in on the eyes, robbing a dying person of their sight. And in panic and fear, the psalm pleads with God to give light to my eyes. Some of us here are facing physical infirmity. The aches and pains of our bodies are growing. The pain is blindingly brilliant at times. 
It robs us of our clarity. It takes away all of our ambition. We can hardly see, let alone move. We feel like we're being dragged around and it's killing us. Others of us are facing different kinds of infirmity, different kinds of the absence of light. Some are staring into poverty, some into suffering marriages, some into wounded family systems. Others have gaping wounds from recent tragedies. Others still wonder if the sun is ever going to shine into our life again. You are in good company today, for the writer of this psalm gets it. You are not alone. You have words to pray today. These words of Psalm 13, prayed for thousands of years, in hundreds of nations, in thousands of languages, you, church, have been given permission to plead with God to intercede, to ask God directly, stop the pain, give light to my eyes, consider and answer me. We might talk and debate in Sunday school classes about how or why God does or does not answer the prayers we pray. But it does not change the fact that we have been shaped by this psalm to, in fact, pray. To cry out to God, how long, O Lord? And to tell God to consider and answer. The first movement is complaint. Say complaint. The second movement is cry for help. The third movement is a confession of faith. The psalmist moves from complaint, how long, O Lord, to cries to help, for help, consider me and answer me, to a final movement of trust and praise, saying, I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, verse 5. And verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The movement from cries for help to a confession of faith may last a lifetime. We may spend half a century crying out to God before we find ourselves trusting and rejoicing and singing once more. Note with me that the psalmist phrases his trust in both the past and the future, but not in the present. Verses 5 and 6. I trusted in your steadfast love, past. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, future. I will sing to the Lord, future. He has dealt bountifully with me, past. The affirmation and confession of faith here are two parentheses that surround the present pain, but do not displace it completely. The psalm of lament is a way of affirming that we may be suffering right now, right here, at church, in our pews, where we are sitting. We are given tools to cry aloud to God about it, to demand that God show up and help us, but we can only say those words and enact that kind of lament because we know what God has done in the past. And we, and we know what we believe God will do in the future. But for right now in the present, we are invited by this psalm to sit in our pain, to wonder how much longer must it go on? That is what biblical lament looks like. Acknowledging at the same time both the brutal reality of our present while, and also, uh, while also affirming the loving kindness of God in the past. 
and the promises of God for the future. Today, Psalm 13 speaks to us in that gap between the present pain and future relief. The psalmist has complained and has petitioned God to do something about his situation, and now he's staring into an unknown future. But instead of going for fear and trepidation or cynicism, the psalmist elects to trust and hope in God. It's like he's saying, God, do something about my pain. I will trust in your love. I will rejoice when you rescue me. And when that day comes, I will sing to the Lord, for I will finally see God deal out goodness again to me. It's like he's saying, I could go into this trial with agony and jaded cynicism. Forget God. I'm all on my own. All I have is all I am. But instead, he says, I have vowed to trust God, to believe firmly that God is good, all the time, all the time, God is good. That God is reliable. That God is dependable. That God can do something about my circumstances, and one day God will. And that trust, that future hope, leads the psalmist back to praise. There is still a sense when I read this that the current crisis has not passed him yet. There's still salvation to experience. There's still rescuing that needs to be done. The storm has not ceased completely, but rather than succumb to the wind and the rains, this grief-stricken poet climbs up on a rock in the midst of the chaos and invites us all to declare again that we trust in God, that we have given ourselves up to God, and that God will rescue us. And when God does, we will sing songs of praise and thanksgiving. Three movements of lament Complaint, cries for help, confessions of faith. And what is peculiar to these types of psalms and to Psalm 13 in particular is that God is there in every stage. These are not blog posts or tweets or Instagram posts where the psalmist is merely writing notes for his own catharsis. These are prayers. And they are directed to God. He laments God's absence, not to himself, but to God. He prays in his time of need, not to himself, but to God. And he trusts in the end, not in his own resources, but in God. And when we allow this psalm and that model to shape our prayer life, then we recognize that it is permissible for us to place God as the object of our prayers of grief. That we can offer to God our laments, our struggles with a life that is not turning out the way we hoped. We can say to God, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? We can make our requests known directly to God. Turn to me and answer me, O God. And we can renew our trust in God directly by saying, I will trust in your steadfast love. God in all three movements. As Christians, we push this even further. Because of our belief in Jesus Christ, we believe that God took on human flesh and experienced, too, these three movements of lament. God is not a cosmic therapist who has no personal connection to the agony of his clients. 
God in Christ is the one who screamed on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God in Christ is the one whose dead body lay in a tomb waiting for God to step in and give it new life. God in Christ is the one who walked out of the grave, shattering every chain that bound the human body to death. And when he breathed in that sacred breath of resurrection, God in Christ promised new life to us as well. I can imagine our Lord uttering the final words of Psalm 13 as he gazed at the world through newly resurrected eyes. I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart rejoices because you've rescued me. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt goodness out to me. May we be shaped by this psalm to grieve to God, to pray to God, and to trust in God, for we follow a Savior who has led us to do so. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.